0: All right, everybody. Uh, Welcome to our new podcast. This is the very first episode of our brand new podcast called Sustain Our Software. We're really excited to be doing this. We have a few panelists coming from different areas of software, each with different backgrounds, and and we'll bring a different aspect to this conversation. I think the topic we're going to talk about, sustaining software and maintaining software, is something that kind of impacts everybody in the industry. Today, we have panelists Pia Mancini. Hi, folks. We have Richard Lidauer. Tell me if going. I said you're... Yep. And uh, we have Eric Berry. Hey, everyone. To kick this off, I'm going to go ahead and uh, give you a little bit of context of why we're here and why we think this is going to be interesting to you. You know, sustaining software is a topic that probably everybody here is, has talked more to the community about than I have, which makes this really interesting to me. I'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who maintains software a lot. And I'm, not, I'm just kind of a newcomer to this conversation Um, And it's one of the reasons why I really want to get wanted to get involved in this conversation. From my perspective, I've struggled a lot over the last few years with keeping up with just the, the actual brute force maintenance of projects and finding the resources to keep projects alive. You know, projects tend to exceed the lifetime that I had expected of them when I first created, you know, the project, meaning I'll create a project. Um, for a specific use case, and then it grows in popularity, and then other people are using it after I've forgotten about it and after I'm no longer using it. And, you know, a lot of people hate talking about this, but it's a reality, and those projects need to be sustained and maintained as much as the Reacts of the world and things like that. And so, to me, I think that, that's just one, one side of the conversation. There's also, you know, much larger projects that have massive communities and consume a lot of resources in the industry And um, and, and there tends to be a lot of conversation and effort put around sustaining those types of projects. Well, it seems to me that a lot of the smaller projects are not really talked about as much, yet then we see the left pad issues and things like that. So So the real problems that we have in maintaining software seem to be related to the smaller projects that nobody really thinks about as much, where a lot of the effort, from my standpoint as a maintainer, seems to be in sustaining the much, much larger projects. And so I, I kind of wanted to kick off the conversation from that standpoint, if that's okay with everybody. And, and um, I'd like to get our panelists' thoughts on that as we uh, kind of dive into this first episode here. Eric, you've been spending a lot of time, and, and actually everybody here has been spending a lot of time in this, in this space. From your perspective, what have the biggest challenges been in trying to make everybody aware of sustainability and to get, the, to get this problem solved in general?
1: So I I come from a background of I'm an open source developer. However, uh, I'm less of a contributor, John, than you are. I'm more of what we call an open source consumer. I'm a very excellent open source consumer, and I love being that. And my contributions back are often more in the documentation or tiny tweaks. But as far as coming up with libraries that fit my needs, I typically look to the leaders to help do that. In my experience over the past couple of years, I've noticed that one of the biggest issues I think that we've seen with what you're saying is, is that developers often undervalue what they work on and they undervalue their time. I believe there's a shift that's going on right now, in a, a, a shift in mentality that, will, that is helping developers understand that, no, it's really not okay or not possible to just say, I'm going to continue maintaining these in my own time for free, not and basically giving up on opportunities and work to do so. And what, what ends up happening is that they're going to end up burning out. And, and we see that constant cycle of burnout where, you know, somebody, uh, somebody is getting overworked, and then all of a sudden, uh, uh, somebody newer comes in and, well, I can do this better. I can take this over. And so they come in, and it's just this constant cycle of burning out that we're seeing. So I, I'd love to see us uh, address things like that. And how can we help it? Help make it so that these maintainers are are not burning out now john i 'm so excited that you 're on this podcast because you and Richard provide that point of view that I really don 't have, which is uh, the point of view of the maintainer the, the person in the trenches for me, what I focus on and what I think i 'm fairly good at is helping those people like like you and richard and, and others get get funding so that you can continue doing what you 're doing so I think for me my i 'm fairly focused on the funding side of things but
0: I'm really excited to talk about all this stuff. I, I, I hope I answered your question. Maybe I didn't. But. Yeah, no, no, you did. And I think I think part of the point that you just made is that the bus factor has, you know, there's an opportunity bus too, right? And uh, yeah. it's more than yeah. just code complexity and things like that, that the bus factor has to do with uh, with a whole lot of other things. So, Pio, mm-hmm.
2: what are your thoughts? So the the approach we take on this um, problem has more to do with an infrastructure approach. Um, We see that it was really difficult for some open source projects to receive funding because there was no legal entity for them to do it, right? Like there's a few open source projects that can create nonprofits or or LLCs or or whatever. But most open source projects have a big uh, problem that is that they all come together in GitHub or GitLab or any other platform but it's very tough for them because they're distributed around the world to have a mechanism through which they can receive funding in a transparent way. So for us, the first kind of hurdle that we needed to solve was how can we kind of lay the plumbing for projects to so at least be able to receive funding from companies and individuals. And so that was the approach that we, that we took. In our kind of journey on open, on open Collective, we found that when we started, I thought we were going to have a lot more trouble about talking about money in open source. I thought that the pushback was going to be huge, far greater than it was, to be honest. I think that the ecosystem is mature enough to realize that part of the sustainability strategy has to do with money, and there's an acceptance for that. And if anything, there's a need for better governance options and tools like Open Collective and, and other platforms that can kind of help make that happen. And so I think that now, and going back to your initial kickoff, that there are projects, large projects that have been very successful in kind of being those beacons that attract a lot of corporate funding or a lot of uh, donations from individuals and companies. That is not necessarily trickle, trickling down to smaller projects. Um, and so, from Open Collective, in like my, like, you know, daily job, I see those things very clearly. The needs from the open, the big open source projects, are very different to the needs from the smaller projects. And it's it's our job to figure out strategies and tooling for both ends of the ecosystem. And then the last thing that I would like to bring up also is like I think there is, there is still not enough clarity on what we mean or what we talk about when we talk about sustainability of our open source projects, of our public digital infrastructure, right? Because sustainability is a million different things. Sustainability is not just money. It has to do also with sustainability of the community and also, as Eric was pointing out, sustainability of the individual, right? The health, personal health of... The folks involved in maintaining, creating um, open source, and um, there's a huge kind of problem that I see, and, and, and I think a, a framework that we all need to bring together. That is, this, this amazing value that creators are creating, and is captured somewhere else. It's captured not in their communities. It's captured by others who are using that value. What are the strategies for that value to also be captured by the community that is creating? the software. I think that that is still unclear. And there's. I think the if the goal of this podcast is to go through different strategies and thinking about sustainability in the very different things and aspects of it, um, then I think it's going to be uh, super interesting because that is the right approach.
0: Yep, thank you for that. And so I like a few things that you said. This is a holistic problem. It's not just something that we can attack from one angle and solve. And the economic value that's being created is hard to capture in a direct way. So the the economic value is not direct economic value. It's indirect economic value. And, you know, I've, I've said this before on Twitter and other places. I've been saying it a lot lately. I think that the open source software community creates more economic value than probably any other community or sector, any industry, but it's indirect economic value and it's very hard to to get paid directly for that. So I'm going to go back around here in a second and ask everybody to introduce themselves so that everybody knows who they're listening to. But I wanted to get some context first and just dive into, you know, what we're going to be talking about. So before we give intros, I want to ask one last person their opinion on this topic. And and, yeah. Yeah,
1: actually, I do have one comment. So I've been studying a little bit on on this economic value. And there's a couple of, uh, I don't, I'll have to, I'll I'll share them in the show notes. I'll share my references in the show notes. But what I found through through these studies that were done is that, and I'm trying to remember, like 59% of all software out there that's built, 59% of all software is open source. So any application, any program, any website, anything that you go to, 59% of that project is open source on average. And I believe, uh, and the study was done many years ago, but the economic value of open source is well over $360 billion. So it's just absolutely incredible that this whole ecosystem is built up to so much tremendous value. And yet just imagine like all of this weight without the reward is sitting on top of the shoulders of these of these people who are trying to keep it live. So what you said resonates really well with me because it's it's exactly what I've found in my studies
0: before. So I'll, I'll make sure I link those, but thank you for sharing that. Eric, another thing too, is that the, the numbers you're talking about, the 300 and what was it, 360 billion you said? Yeah, I think so. But I'm, I'm going to have to clarify that. I'm, well, gonna, no,
1: I'm pulling my, my keynote right
0: now. Whatever the number is, I'm sure that it doesn't, it can't possibly take into consideration network externalities or, or the, the externalities of value that are created like that you just can't possibly quantify. You know, how much yeah. compound value is created from the faster innovation cycles, the collaboration and the, you know, the soft things that we really can't measure directly. There's just so much more value there. This is definitely an interesting topic to me that I think we'll, we'll have to dive into more. Before we keep going though, I'd love to get Richard's opinion on this topic. And wh- why are you here today, Richard? And what's interesting to you about this topic?
3: So it's interesting you talk about economic value. For me, that's, that's a very interesting point because money is obviously important. It's how I fuel my house, uh, heating-wise. It's how I buy food. It's how I know that when I go to sleep in the, at night, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll probably still have a house to go to sleep in. <laughs> at the same time, money is a, it's a tool to give those things and it doesn't actually matter to me intrinsically. What matters is the food and the heat and my loved ones and my community. What matters is knowing that I'm an okay person and that I'm not, you know, going out there being horrible. And a lot of software and open source maintainers don't see things from that perspective and continually overburden themselves and bring on things like anxiety and depression and burnout. We already mentioned burnout, which is hideous. I've been going through that for years, I think. And what I'm really interested in is, isn't so much how do we sustain the economic powerhouse that is open source but how do we keep people thinking creatively and keep them excited and happy in their lives as software developers and not necessarily elsewhere? And so sustaining for me, I mean, you can sustain a project, but most of the time a project sits dead and fallow on a GitHub profile. and No one's really interacting with it. Maybe people download an NPM, maybe someone makes a PR. What's interesting to me is, well, what happens when you have 500 of those projects and you can't deal with them all? And every single day, you have to context switch and move to another one. And as a developer, that's really hard. How do you deal with that? So for me, it's not about sustaining software. It's about sustaining the sustainers, sustaining the open source people, trying to figure out how to make their lives better individually. And a lot of that does involve things. I'm not trying to downplay the money side of things, right? A lot of that does involve, let's get money to these people. Let's figure out how to make projects funded. Let's figure out how to... Think of different profit models on top of open source so we can continue to develop in the open for free. You know, Creative Commons was an awesome copyright thing and now we have tons of artwork all around the world that's been labeled with it. The MIT license was incredible. But the problem is that you don't get paid for it. So let's try to figure out how to make that different, how to work around the system while enabling free sharing, you know, but also paid sharing. So yeah, I'm not trying to minimize the money thing. I just think a lot of it's about Mental health and open source, and that's kind of what I'm really interested in, and this is multifaceted. You have to attack it on all sides at once. Um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is really really true. I mean there really is a pyramid, and you have to have everything in place before you can think creatively about what feature do you actually need in this next platform in this next software I'm rambling, so I'm going to stop
0: no no absolutely Would you <laughs> one, one thing that I like really like about what you just said. Was if you, if you're spending a lot of time trying to, now I'm paraphrasing, but this is kind of what, what I took away from one part of what you said is if you spend a ton of time fundraising and doing things that are, you know, efforts to sustain the project itself, you're really just trading one sustainability problem for another, yep right? So that doesn't solve the problem. Yep. And there are a lot of things, a lot of practices, I guess we can call them anti-patterns in programming related to the behavior of uh, sustaining projects and uh, people going overboard and, and compromising their health—that are really what we as programmers would call anti-patterns. Right? Yep. They're not good for us. So those aren't. Those are also sustainability problems, right? If you can't if you can't live long enough, if you li- if you live a shorter amount of time, you're not sustaining your own life. So that, so that's not good.
3: I would love to read a book called Software Development Anti-Patterns and have no code in it whatsoever. <laughs> Things yeah, like trying to write a book of documentation instead of just to read me, or not writing to read me at all. You know, stuff like that.
0: That would, be, that would be an interesting one. So with that, uh, now that everybody's had an opportunity to give our audience some background and context as to why we're here today, I'd love for everybody to introduce themselves and um, share with everyone who you are and, and what brought you here. And maybe we can start with Eric Berry. Yeah, I, I appreciate
1: that. So yeah, I'm Eric Berry. I have been a programmer for, for about 20 years. Um, I've been a Ruby programmer, Ruby-focused programmer for about 10. I was introduced to open source through the Ruby community. Before that, I was in Java and PHP, which was not too uh, open sourcey at the time. But open sourcey is now a word, by the way. We're all going to use it. <laughs> <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> um, so the reason I'm here, and I think the reason I'm, I'm at least mildly qualified to talk about this is because... About two years ago, I started up this side project uh, called Code Sponsor, and my thoughts were this is that part of the problem that we're talking about today is, is the, the funding of open source. And I, and I just remember driving to, to work one day thinking, how silly is it that we're having these problems when, when there's these advertisers, these, these companies out there that want, they have an unlimited budget. As long as they can get a positive return on that spend, they have an unlimited budget to be able to pay. So I thought, well, how can we connect these budgets these marketing budgets to developers and make sure that they get them. So initially, uh, uh, back in the day, I started code sponsor which placed a, a small sponsorship message on GitHub. And anytime any, any developer clicked on that, money would go to that developer. Since then, it's grown into CodeFund, which is now more of a, a website-based ethical advertising platform. But, But my focus day-to-day is how can I get money to software developers and so last month i'm super excited literally this week i paid out twenty four thousand dollars to developers all over the world and it's super exciting to be able to do that that's my why that i'm here i I, my why is to be able to say you know it's really hard to to solve this problem and i know that like compared to what open collective and p is doing like i'm it's just i'm a fly on the wall but it's making a difference to those 55 developers that i paid this month. And then hopefully it'll make a difference to the 90 that I pay in three months and the 200 that I pay in, in a year. And so, yeah, that's, that's who I am. I'm just super excited to be here. And John, I got to say, like, you're, you're one hell of a, a, a host. So I appreciate you, you running the show here. Well, thanks
0: for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> this is uh, my first podcasting host experience. So let's, let's see if I can make it through without, yeah. without breaking we, down, Nope,
1: so. Nobody would guess that at all. <laughs> nobody would guess that.
0: Well, thank you, thank you for that. So Pia, tell us about your background and and, uh, what makes this topic so interesting to you.
2: So my background, general life background is I'm a political scientist. I worked in politics most of my life. So that's probably a topic for another podcast. I'm happy to chat about like- Well, so you um, fit right in with open source software. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I've actually moved into open source, you know, trying to stay away from politics. if only I had knew, right? <laughs> and um, So I co-founded Open Collective three years ago to support communities around the world that... Um, so essentially what we were seeing was that it's very... Um, so our, our economic system is designed for corporations, speaks corporations, whether for profit or non-profit, right? But kind of the, the entity that organizes collaboration today in a, in a formal way is a corporation. And what we were feeling was that that was very much at odds with how we operate in the world, with the networks that we belong to, with how we organize. Like no one wants to be the president of, you know, the internet or well, maybe someone does, but our networks, our groups, our communities do not want to have a hierarchical structure that has, you know, complicated transitions and that is vertical, etc. And so we, we set out to figure out how we can support our communities who do not fit the model the current assumptions that our economic system has, how can we help them have economic power? Because we believe that the communities, the networks, the groups of people that have a shared mission are the ones that are going to have the biggest impact in the world. But they need money to do it. And there was an infrastructure problem there. And so we started Open Collective. And um, essentially, Open Collective is a way for unincorporated groups of folks to have funding in an open and transparent way without needing to set up their own um, legal entity to do it. And open source was... Like it spread it like wildfire. Open source was the, you know, a community that was absolutely ready for this. There was already money that wanted to go to open source to sustain open source. Maintainers were already and you know, they have the collaboration tools that they need to be a community. And so we just needed to build that bridge, and we did. And um, it's a project that it's been ongoing for three years, and we're currently supporting thousands of open source projects around the world. We've raised more than, I don't know, three and a half million dollars for projects. And, and it's been like a very, very interesting uh, joyride. The reason why I'm here is because this is my world, my community, and I want to learn more and also understand, understand it more and, and give my two cents to it. And yeah, we started Sustain Open Source two years ago. It was an event that we put together to chat about this. Um, as you said, John, before, it's a, it's obviously a multi-stakeholder um, conversation and also the, the solutions that we create need to have all these kind of different approaches. Um, I see it a little bit like alternative energy. I, there's probably not one alternative energy that is going to replace fossil fuels. It's going to be a combination of, of very different strategies that depend that are better suited for different communities and ecosystems. And we need. I think that the approach to sustainability has to have that. Like if we expect one company, one project or one solution to, to, to solve this problem, we're going to be, I think we're going to fail. Yeah, that's, that's who I am. That's why I'm here. I'm originally from Argentina, born and raised in Buenos Aires. And um, yeah, that's about it.
0: Well, thank you. And, Pia, you've given a lot more than uh, two cents to the community so far. So thank you for that. And that siren you heard before, that was, uh, that was our call sign. Uh, this is SOS, right? Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> sustain, sustain our software. So that, that, that was intentional.
3: That me. was a maintainer passing yeah, yeah. out somewhere. That,
0: that was just our call sign. <laughs> that was our, our rally cry. So and w- with that, Richard, how about you? What, what's your motivation for being here? And tell us a little bit about, I mean, well, so we already heard a little bit about the motivation, but what's your, what's your background and what brought you to this point in your life?
3: Yeah, so I went to university for, for Greek, decided Greek was really hard, switched to linguistics, <laughs> decided to be an academic for a while, and then realized that academia doesn't pay, and also that it's actually really hard.
2: But and so coding, you moved to open source? <laughs> well, coding was always
3: easy for me, and I, I randomly got a job as a front end developer in New York, obscurely, and that was really fun. And I realized that Angular existed, and that I could contribute to it. And that I could go online and fix bugs and they might get into the code base and documentation could be improved and then I could use that in the future. And also that I wouldn't need a CV if I did that. I could walk up to anyone and be like, hey, well, I've contributed to the Angular code base. How are you doing? And that actually worked really well for me. I moved to San Francisco, got a job almost right off the plane. And I just kept doing open source and realizing, what actually, this is really nice because It was kind of like academia. Everything's in the open. You put your papers out there. You put your research out there. Other people can comment on it. And it had the same sort of feeling for me that we're all building a shared future together, that we're all, you know, putting in our labor and seeing the fruit of it in the commons, which is something I really loved. I didn't want to see, you know, my dad was a real estate guy for 30 years and where's his work now? You know, it's kind of odd. So what I loved about this industry is that the, the detritus, that's you know, the leavings of the work are public and other people can use them. It's really awesome. If I build a tool and maybe I don't use it for the next five years, someone else might use it and I've saved them time. And so I got involved with that. And then I got involved with IPFS, the Decentralized Web. And somewhere along the line there, I realized other people weren't doing documentation and weren't doing community stuff and weren't figuring out how to run community calls and how to get people interested in helping out. And so I started helping on that side. And then all of a sudden I was the community guy and not the developer anymore, which was okay. So I switched and I made a company called Maintainer Mountaineer, where now I help run people's communities. And also along the way, I burned out pretty bad a couple of times. And from that, I realized, whoa, okay, coding is an awesome, super powerful tool that can very quickly encapsulate your entire life. And that can be dangerous. And so what can we do to make it easier for people? What can we do to make it easier for the maintainer, not just for newcomers? Uh, what can we do to make it easier for everyone in the project to get really up to speed fast on what the community's like and whether this is a good project to work on and whether or not you know, the whole thing is going to get eclipsed by some other closed source project in six months or is this really a good place to put your time? You know, Should I really fix this bug now or should I wait a bit or should I see if someone else can do it or should I help someone else do it or... All these different questions is what I was thinking about and getting into. And I've been doing that now for three, four years. Absolutely love it. And that's where I'm at. I think that answers all. all the yeah, problem.
0: yeah, that, that answers the question. So this has been a journey for you. And and now you're hoping to uh, to get your voice out there with everybody else and, and hopefully, uh, as Pia said, it's going to take a lot of different solutions to solve this problem, right? So at least yep. at least we can keep the conversation going and get other people involved in helping us solve the problem. So I guess what with that you? said, Who are yeah, you?
2: John, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you tell us about you.
0: So let me give my, a little bit about my background and what brought me here. So I was in sales and marketing for almost twenty years and business development, and was a uh, have been an entrepreneur since I left college to start my first business over twenty. Now it was twenty five years ago, and um, I sold that business after a couple of years. It was a very small it wasn 't enough to retire on, but uh, it was enough to pay our investors back and and uh, you know, fortunately, we sold that business before we went out of business but and then after that, I um, you know spent a number of years in, in business consulting and spent a lot of time in supply chain related stuff and about five or six years ago, I came up with an idea for a web application that I really you know I loved this this idea I thought it was a great you know, business model and, and idea that I had that I wanted to build and raise money for. And I went out and tried to raise money and I thought, hey, I've, I've raised money before. I should be able to get this thing funded. And after spending a year trying to raise money, I couldn't get anybody to invest in this concept. But I, I knew and still know today, it was, a, it was a great idea. And it basically was a way to allow anyone anywhere in the world with an internet connection to facilitate online orders. And that sounds like such an obvious, simple thing today. But uh, 80% of orders in, in B2B sales are still conducted across phone, fax, and email today, believe it or not. So anyway, long story short, five years ago, I decided to learn how to program. I just put down the proverbial marketing clipboard and picked up a keyboard and started, started learning to code. I had been on GitHub for a couple of years, just kind of observing and watching and um, you know, looking for things that I could use to try to build this project I wanted to create. And I realized that I would never be able to do it without just diving in and learning how to code. So there are a couple of things that this is kind of a side benefit of being here today. I see people ask questions all the time on sites like Quora. Like, I'm 25 years old. Is it too, learn for, too late for me to learn how to program? I'm like, hey, buddy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 39. I mean, I was 39 when I learned. 39 when I wrote my first line of code.
3: This and, morning, my friend sent me a quote from a 100-year-old woman who said her greatest regret was not picking up the violin at 65. Wow. Because she wow. could have had 35 years of playing, so...
0: No, I still have plenty of time to learn how to use the, play the violin then. So <laughs> so thank you for that. You know, I've got another 15 years. But um, but yeah, so for me, this has been a different journey, I think, than the average developer. For me, it was, uh, you know, I almost felt like I had to do this. Started learning how to program. And initially, I wasn't thinking about anyone else using my code. <laughs> I was just learning how to program. And then all of a sudden, one day, I started getting issues and conversations. I was like, hey, this is kind of cool. This is neat. And, and it's fun. And and then that turned into more and more and all of a sudden it you know today now at any given time my business partner and I we have anywhere from 300 to 400 open issues somewhere on github and collectively between the two of us we get about 6 billion downloads a month on our on our projects today and it's gotten to a point where we so we absolutely love programming i mean truly we love it we spend a lot of time pair programming and we just geek out every time we learn something new and just We've experienced a little bit of burnout with maintaining from time to time, so that's part of the motivation for being here. But for me, the reason I'm here today is that I absolutely love programming. What I don't love is some of the scarcity mentality that I see in the, in the community around this problem, and meaning that what I've observed is that there are a lot of really amazing potential solutions out there, like the ones represented by the folks around the table today. And I also, by the way, have been doing some, I've been uh, working with Tidelift a little bit recently and Tidelift is a newer, kind of the new kid on the block. And um, we've had a lot of conversation around how this is really a, a multi-pronged problem that needs to be solved by lots of different solutions. And so um, back to the, the point I was making was that I think that there is a common belief or at least viewpoint that because we don't have the money to solve this problem today, or rather individual developers don't, that there isn't enough money out there to go around. But that's simply just not true. There is a lot of money sitting on the sidelines that can solve this problem. And so together, hopefully, we can get the conversation going and figure out how to connect that money to the value that's being created and um, help developers be able to sustain these projects that are being used by so many, you know, thousands or millions of companies out there that are creating commercial projects today. Now, I know we we have uh, lots of other topics to talk about. And the other day, I was, when, when we were on a call the other day, Eric brought up and said, hey, you know, we've, we've had many, many different people tell us that they have, you know, things that they'd like to hear more about and talk more about in, you know, as it relates to sustainability. Eric, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but do you, would you mind bringing up a few of those topics and, and kind of set, setting the stage for things that we'll be talking about you know in the future on this show and and Pia obviously I'd like to hear your thoughts as well and and Richard
2: yes and also if you, if we have an email or a way for folks that listen to these first couple of uh, shows and have ideas of topics that we might be missing and they think we should be looking into or folks we should invite yeah we should we should have a, a channel for that i'm not sure eric i'll leave that to you
1: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I actually think the first place to go would be um, to sustain OS's discourse. This year we set up, or last year we set up a discourse uh, forum, and God bless you discourse, we love you guys, for being able to discuss different topics that are around open source sustainability uh, and growth. And so, John, to answer some of your questions, I'm actually just going to read off some of the topics that we have on here. We have different sustainability models that are, are, are very important to understand. Open source governance um, and leadership, maintainer health. Richard, you alluded to that before. Uh, blockchain, and how does blockchain pertain to the future of open source, especially in the future of open source funding? How to uh, be a good community citizen? And corporate contributions, how do, you, how do you handle communicating with corporations and, and companies and possibly how do you communicate like, hey, we want to take part of what we're working on and make it open source and be able to communicate the value of that to the companies. The resource management is one. Licensing is a huge topic. I think licensing is still kind of a black box for a lot of developers. When you get on, GitHub offers a really great solution to help you kind of understand the licensing. but knowing why the licensing is there, why licensing actually defines open source. And then finally, the other topic that they have are the different revenue models. Now, there are plenty of different ways to bring in money. And John, you mentioned that Lift is not the only, it's not the only way to go. Now, Tidelift is a fantastic company and they're doing amazing things, but they're not mutually exclusive with other solutions. I don't see any of these as being mutually exclusive. I think that the solution is going to be a combination of all of these different ideas and ways to help fund and sustain open source. So these are some of the topics that I'm extremely excited to talk about and we've got a lot of great people that have already committed to to being a part of this conversation and over the next year you're going to hear from. Them. We're really excited to reach out, get everybody on in. and I'm so excited about this podcast. And I've been podcasting for quite a while. I know that most of us have had some Experience in this, but for me, it's such an incredible feeling to sit here and, and feel like this group, we're talking about things that are so important, so, so important. Now, I'm not devaluing other podcasts that I've done before, but this is so impactful and opening up the conversation to the world, allowing them to be able to kind of become part of the conversation, become part of the solution is really important to me. And I'm, I'm very excited to be here with you guys.
0: Yeah, well, well said. And, and I'm excited to be here too. I think that uh, we're going to provide links and information. I think after we, we uh, decide wh- where that information is going to be po- posted, we'll give everybody the opportunity to send us their ideas and request additional topics and get involved in that conversation with us so that this, we certainly don't want this to be a one-sided conversation. We'd love to hear your feedback. But Pia, also, um, you, you had something you wanted to add to that as well
2: no, I think that the, I added the topics that I had on my list, and, and um, okay. Eric just mentioned them. Um, it was just about having a way for folks to reach out to us with uh, whatever we're missing.
0: Okay. For, for my part, I think in, in future conversations, one thing that I'm really looking forward to as well, and I, you know, I, I brought this up when I uh, met the other three distinguished uh, panelists that we have with us today, one of the things that I'm interested in is we always talk about sustainability, it seems anyway. The conversation usually is just about money and it's about economic value and it's it's about things like that. But quite honestly, I think that a big part of the, the quote-unquote sustainability problem is maintainability and just bad coding practices. And honestly, so many projects that are getting funding right now are just horribly maintained. And while, it, while there are a lot of other better-maintained projects that actually aren't getting funded because they're better maintained meaning that you're not seeing as much of a problem with them being maintained so nobody feels compelled to sustain them to to fund them it becomes much more obvious that a project needs funding when it's not well maintained that's my opinion as a maintainer and i and i think that's that might be a controversial opinion and so those are the types of topics that i want to dive into like not not just the sustainability aspect of this and money and where's it coming from and how do we connect economic, you know, value to economic creation to, to uh, value creation. But how do we help maintainers see that, you know, part of solving this problem is to to follow some conventions and to get better at making your projects more maintainable, making them, you know, easier to sustain, so to speak.
3: And also how to, how we take a project from being just a small project to being a community who then sustains it for you or being a foundation or turning into a company. These are all pathways to basically taking you out of the equation, which is also part of it. If if a project can self-sustain itself, that's ideal. Or if a project doesn't need sustenance, a lot of JavaScript developers I know build single-use repos that have one thing, it's well-tested, and it's never gonna add another feature because that's it, it's just the one thing. And then the idea is, well, we don't need to maintain that anymore because it does what it said it does, and that's it. Which is an interesting way of getting around the whole problem. And hopefully we can have panelists on the show who have talked about these things, have, have written these modules, have built the left pads of the world. And that's something I'm really looking forward to as well is getting to interface with the community. I know we probably shouldn't talk about it yet, but I just bought sustainarsoftware.com and I'll try to point that at relevant places. That will be open source. So if you think it's not very useful, you can go to the GitHub account for it, which I will set up. But yeah, this is exciting. This is very cool.
0: I think what Richard just said basically is that in order for us to sustain that new website that we have, we're expecting the community that's listening to build out that that website. Yeah, if you want to
3: build all of it, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Uh. yeah.
0: So, so PRs will be accepted. And so otherwise, don't expect anything. That's, that's kind of what we are saying there. Um,
2: John, I, I'd like to add to what you were saying before about maintenance and also like something that I want to bring um, to the show is having understanding that maintaining open source also has different needs, different skills, not just coding and also different skills and how the open source communities are able to attract those skills and onboard for different skill sets and a diversity of backgrounds that are going to make those communities more sustainable, right, and more resilient.
0: That's a very good point. One other thing, you know, this will be something that we can dive into more or maybe not in future discussions. But I did want to bring this up that I don't know how much people have really talked about this in the sustainability discussions. But, you know, I mentioned earlier the kind of scarcity mentality. I think the other side of that scarcity coin is that meaning that there's a perception that there's not enough money to go around. And I think because of that, my observation has been that there's a little bit of a a shaming kind of behavior in open source around how money is spent, and how developers want to use the money that they raise for their projects. And I think that if we're going to find a healthy solution, a way for developers to holistically, you know, literally live healthy lifestyles and to be able to solve this problem and to, you know, Richard hinted on this a minute ago that, you know, there are micro libraries that seemingly sustain themselves, maintain themselves, because once you publish the library, it doesn't need a lot of maintenance. But, What that says is that there's a sustainability problem with maintainers themselves, not just the projects as well. Maintainers like me have, I have hundreds of micro libraries because I can reuse them in lots of different places yet. and, And at the same time, those are the libraries that are keeping me on my toes every day. And that, you know, there's always some kind of a new security concern somewhere, some fire that has to be put out. You know, there needs to be a solution that allows developers like me um, and and Richard and folks that we're all, you know, working with every day to be able to sustain their projects in a way that might not fit on a ledger in a traditional way or in a transparent way, or might not be easy to to quantify in traditional terms. So I'm interested in hearing more about that as as we go forward, and hopefully uh, we can explore how that might be solved if we just get everybody talking together and figure out how we can attack this from lots of different sides with lots of different solutions. With that said, so before we sign off, anything, uh, Eric, Richard, Pia, anything you'd like to add?
1: Well, before we sign off, we got to follow the, uh, the tradition of, yes. of the podcast series that we're doing, which is called Picks. So if Absolutely. there's nothing else, I'd love to introduce you all to Picks and kind of explain how it works and explain to our audience how it works. Honestly, it's one of my favorite parts of the show. Please do. All right. So every podcast that we record, we're going to end the show with what we call picks. Picks are items or blogs or podcasts or or movies or anything that is interesting to you. And and typically every panelist and guest chooses anywhere between one to three picks. So for example, I'll, I'll do a couple today. So I have a couple of picks. My first one is a new game that I found out. So yesterday I, you know, as a dad programmer and you're just kind of like, I, I want to escape from the world. So what I did was I started looking for for games that are that are more um, triggering of the brain. So I found this game called Adventureland. You can find it by going to adventure.land. And it's such a fascinating game because it's like an old school MMORPG that allows you to run around and kill monsters and and gain levels and buy stuff and sell stuff. But it's all done by writing code. So anything that you do in the game, you actually have to write the JavaScript for it. And it's a lot of fun. Oh, that's fun. And boy, boy, does it make me feel dumb. But it's absolutely (laughs) fantastic. And what's really cool is so I set it up last night and I let it run all all night long. And I woke up this morning and I'm like already level 35. So I'm feeling really good about myself. (laughs) So it's it's addictive, too. That's great. It's addictive, but it's completely passive. So if you're a programmer and you like to, like, have something going on on the side that doesn't require your attention, but, you know, you can write little scripts and have your characters do stuff, it's a fantastic thing. And my other pick, I actually forgot what it was going to be, so maybe I'll just leave it at that
0: one. But, yeah, so, John, what are your picks? Wow, so I'll be honest with you, I didn't have any picks prepared today. So I am going to, what I'm going to do is, I'm just gonna give one pick, a shameless promotion, but I promise in the next podcast, I'm gonna have some other picks, but this is a great one. I'm gonna mention Tidelift again. I think everybody's already really much, much more aware of the, the other solutions that we talked about today. Given how new Tidelift is, I just wanted to give a shout out to them again and, um, and tell everybody to check out Tidelift. Most companies use some open source software and there are lots and lots of different maintainers maintaining that software. And so Tidelift offers those companies who use open source software a way to pay for one subscription to basically protect them against uh, vulnerabilities and, and things of that nature. Now, You'll get a much better description of what they do if you go to Tidelift.com. I'm not going to even pretend to be able to describe their business model very well.
3: It's for an entire stack. So they basically you sign up yeah. for a whole stack and they sort of trickle that money down to the maintainers and get them verified such that, they're going to be on call for vulnerabilities. So it's one way of making sure that companies feel like they can pay someone and making sure that maintainers feel like they can make some money. It's an interesting model.
0: Exactly right. They take care of connecting with the maintainers to pay the maintainers to maintain the software so that the companies just have to worry about one payment and they're covered. So that's my
2: pick.
3: Thank you. Pia, you got anything?
2: I have two. I also wasn't prepared, but whatever. (laughs) So my first pick is I recently signed up to this newsletter called Brain Pickings by Maria Popova.
3: Yes, that awesome. it has
2: awesome. been a delight. It's like probably the only newsletter that I actually read when, I, when it hits my inbox. I'm very zealous about my inbox, and I love it. And I highly recommend um, her Brain Pickings. It's this combination of uh, literature and and poetry and art and astronomy and science. It's just marvelous. And her book, uh, Figuring, it's also like I recently received it through um, a book club. I know I'm a geek that I'm part of and it's been it's been great. So that is like my pick, brain pickings, I highly suggest it. And my second pick has nothing to do with that, but it's about the Inuit tradition of how they educate their kids. I have a very stubborn toddler, a very stubborn three year old that is clearly my daughter And someone recently in Twitter shared with me a publication about how Inuits teach their kids to deal with anger and kind of the the parenting toolkits that they have. And it has to do with stories and plays and fantasies. And it's been no tears for the first time in quite a while. So I'm very happy. So thank you, Nick Vidal, for that recommendation.
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, I have a five-year-old. I'm sure that I'm going to I'm gonna de- definitely look that up. That sounds I'll sh-
2: interesting. I'll share that, John. It's been like an eye-opener for me.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Richard, what are your picks? So I got
3: linked in an article the other day, which is from 99% Invisible, called Palaces for the People. I'm a big fan of public libraries, and this is a really great description of what they are and what Carnegie was trying to do when he coined the phrase Palaces for the People and spent a lot of his money on trying to actually give back to society and what libraries do today and how important they are for resilience in people's communities really interesting quote in there about chicago heat wave i think it was in the 90s where neighborhoods which use their library in which everyone was on the street and which people knew each other had drastically higher success rates at dealing with a heat wave whereas neighborhoods where people weren't using their libraries weren't on the streets very much didn't know each other a lot more people died from not having air conditioning. Uh, Very interesting article. It's a quick read, probably five minutes. There's also a podcast for it. I don't have a lot of time for podcasts, ironically, but I love that article. So that'd be my one pick. I think there's a lot of corollaries you can draw between that and open source. Um, I'm interested in figuring out what they are. And then my other pick would be no, that's it. That's just one. That's just you're, cool. just gonna get,
0: you're just going to uh, follow the trend of doing one pick today. like me. Well, if you yeah.
3: want to gamify things, birding's pretty <laughs> awesome. But I'm not going to talk about that because I never showed up. So, yeah, that's it.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate <sighs> that. I did want to mention one more thing. So, again, a, long, a shameless promotion here it, to help me sustain my open source projects. If you do check out Tidelift and you sign up for Tidelift, you know, mention my name or just give them the code JS. That's my initials, but it also happens to be JavaScript. So Should be easy for you to remember. That's just, that was it for me.
1: At the end of every show, we we like to uh, just ask our guests typically, how do they find them? Uh, How do they reach out to them if needed? And since we don't have any guests, but we are all new to this podcast, I think it'd be good to ask everyone, how do we find you online? How do we get in contact with you? How do we follow you? That type of thing. So, Pia, I'll start with you.
2: Yeah, sure. So, I mostly hang out on Twitter. So, you can find me at... Pia Mancini, M-A-N-C-I-N-I, and otherwise, Pia at opencollective.com.
1: Perfect. John, how about, how about you go?
0: Same, uh, Twitter. You can find me at John Schlinkert. It's J-O-N-S-C-H-L-I-N-K-E-R-T. You can find me on Twitter and same, same on GitHub. Same username on GitHub. I hang out there probably more than anywhere else. So GitHub, Twitter. Perfect. Richard.
3: So I used to hang out on Twitter and recently I haven't been very good at it. So you can send me a letter I live at 10 Monsignor Crosby Avenue, number four, Montpellier, Vermont, <laughs> <zero laughs> 05602. Uh,
0: if you want to send me an actual take, letter, you could also do Richard's.
3: I do take fax. Uh, you have to do the weird email to fax thing or something, though, because it'll have to go to richard.littower at gmail.com. You can find me online at maintainer.io or burnfen.com as well. But seriously, send me a letter. You have my address now. That's where I live.
0: How about, how about Morse code? Do you... I don't
3: take Morse code. I do take smoke signals. So if you can figure that out, I also have a dove coat. So if you want to send me a, a dove with a pigeon, you know, with like a little message that's just owl old. owls. Yes, but good luck <laughs> getting them to go anywhere for you.
0: <laughs> All right.
1: Uh, that's awesome. And, uh, yep. You can find me online at Coderberry on Twitter and GitHub. And, um, also check out codefund.io. We, uh, we'd love to help out. So to wrap up the show, uh, thank you all for, for being here. We will see you next week. For the listeners, expect some great content. We're excited to get everything out to you guys and be a part of the conversation. Uh, we will be setting up a Discord channel for the public, all of the panelists are going to be on the Discord channel. So if you have any questions or would like to disc- talk with us, that's a great place to reach out and we will put that in the show notes. Also, just to know everything that we talked about today will be in our show notes. So if you heard something and you'd like to go back to it, you look at our show notes. We also have a full transcription of the podcast on our website. So thank you all for joining us. John, Richard, Pia, this has been amazing and uh, we'll see
2: you all next week. Bye, everyone. Have a great week. Bye-bye.